I'd ask, you, ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. This morning we'll be continuing in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Now while Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not tremble, so does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation and of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods at the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, and the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of our Lord. May he rise eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Now I would uh, would recommend, please be seated. I would recommend that uh, if you do not have your Bible um, with you, um, that, that it would, if possible, that you would uh, take the Bible from the pew in front of you and follow along in the, in the Bible because this is, again, it's a, it's a bit of a technical passage and it will really your, your understanding and ability to follow along will be helped if, if you follow along um, in the Scripture. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture yet again, I, I pray that you would work in our hearts Help us, Lord, to apprehend Christ. Help us, Lord, to see who Christ is. Help us, Lord, to understand who you are. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your creation. 
And we pray that you would reveal yourself ultimately to us in your word. Help us, I pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Here in Canada, we live in a post-Christian culture. Unlike the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock and the Puritans who followed soon thereafter to settle what would become the United States, we're firmly grounded on biblical principles. The settlers of Canada were more of a mixed bag. There were some, certainly some Protestants of the Church of England, but also a large number of Roman Catholics and many, many people without any firm religious convictions whatsoever. Nonetheless, Canada was at least broadly founded on Christian principles. The influence of Christianity continued into the time of, of Confederation in 1867, when Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley, a Methodist, suggested that Canada be referred to as the Dominion of Canada in the British North America Act. And he did this because of the words of Psalm 72.8, May God have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But throughout the, into the, the 19th century and throughout the 20th century, the values that Canada had in many respects been founded on eroded. And really we saw this, just to continue, I even saw it in, in, my, in my younger days until as just almost all the vestiges of Christianity have been and are being erased from our culture. Even the, the latest iteration of our passports is, has removed anything even of the, the fathers of confederation and part of our cancel culture. The, la the last reference to Canada as the dominion of Canada was dropped in 1982 when Pierre Trudeau finally, or officially rather, dropped the, the name of Canada's celebration of, of confederation previously called Dominion Day on July the 1st, and you replaced it with what we now know as Canada Day. But again, the tide had turned already years prior. But this really was a, a telling moment that reflected a radical shift away from what this country has historically stood for. Again, now Canada's religious heritage is barely discernible, even from what it was in 1982. Apart from a, a remnant of biblical churches that are scattered across the country, our nation has consciously rejected God's dominion in favor of secular humanism. But this is not just a shift in morality. This is a, re a rejection of the Bible and a rejection of the God of the Bible. God still reigns, but most have rejected him in their hearts. And now if you talk to the average person on the street, you'll find that it's shifted so radically that you will find that biblical illiteracy rules the day, that the vast majority of people that you talk to will have very little, if any, understanding or even really consciousness of God's word. People just do not know what the Bible actually says. As you think about evangelism, this actually makes evangelism more complex because if you simply open the Bible and share the truths of God's word with someone, it's like you're speaking a different language. We see this with the Apostle Paul that, that we'll see that he takes a different tack here in Athens where the people are completely oblivious to biblical truth. 
Remember that usually when Paul visited a new location, where did he first go? We see this throughout the book of Acts, that his first stop was the synagogue. And what did he do in the synagogue? Is he opened the scriptures and he reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearers from the word of God. But in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, we see Paul do something different. He's doing something different here in Athens. Again, we're going to see that he'll start out in the synagogue reasoning from the scriptures, but he'll quickly move out to reasoning with the, with the Athenian intelligentsia. The, these Gentile philosophers had no familiarity with the scriptures, and so he reasoned with them from revelation, but not with the, from the, this special revelation of God's word. He reasoned with them from the general revelation of God's creation, and God's providence. As Sinclair Ferguson tells us, while Paul understands that it is not possible to reason somebody into conversion, he does believe with all his heart that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one truth that is consistently reasonable. Brothers and sisters, we have a reasonable faith. Our faith makes logical sense, and our faith accords with what people already have some knowledge of, that which they have seen in nature. As Paul tells the Athenians in his address at the Areopagus, natural theology tells everyone that there is a God and that he is governing all things and will hold all people accountable. So Paul then proceeds from moving to, from, from natural revelation to special revelation the word of God, especially that of, of Jesus Christ. So Paul tells them about Jesus Christ. Again, he, he opens with the point of connection with the purpose of telling them the gospel. People need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. They need to hear that Christ died and was raised for our justification. But in order to get there, you need to help people to understand. You need to know that, you are speaking this, that, that you're speaking the same language as them. So what Paul does here is it really, it's, it's, it's apologetics. It's a, it's a form of, of pre-evangelism, preparing people for the gospel. And we'll see Paul here in action. So in this, Paul provides a, a helpful example for us as we seek to evangelize people in our post-Christian culture. He shows us that we need to find common ground. Now, Paul was classically educated. He, under, he, he knew classical Greek literature and classical Greek philosophy and theology. He understood the philosophy of those he was ministering to. Now, as you set out, and I hope you do, as you set out to, to share the gospel with, with your friends and your neighbors and, and people in the community, you, you will find that quite often you're witnessing to those who know nothing of the Bible. That's really not new. I've said before that I was, was 23 years old the first time I heard the gospel. And that's 30 years ago. It's not continued in the, in the right direction since then. So when you come to people who don't know the Bible, you, you, seek, to, you seek to help them to, to know who God is by first knowing them, by listening to them, by listening to them carefully, and by finding a point of connection, and then by pointing them to Christ. This is not pragmatism. 
Paul moves here from the, the unknown God, showing them that God is the creator, to showing them that, that the risen Christ is the God who is both judge and savior. And this is his point and his purpose all along. If, if you're planning to, to share the gospel with someone, and again, I hope you are, you need to, to consciously be aware of, what, of where you want to take the conversation. You can't just, just let the conversation happen and, and unfold naturally. You need to be intentional with the conversation and be, be looking for ways that you can, can lead the person, the conversation you're having, leading them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And trusting that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they might just be saved. As our passage begins, Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. Remember, the Christians in, in Berea had sent him away when the Thessalonian Jews came to Berea, stirring up the crowds against him, as they had already done in Thessalonica. And Athens, the, the city to which they sent Paul, was about, 200 and, about, four, about 400 kilometers away, um, and he traveled by sea. And so they, tra- they, they sent him really as far away from Berea as they could. When Athens had previously been a... a a, a central political, religious, cultural, and intellectual center where, where there, are, there are many Greek philosophers that, where they had based themselves, including Socrates and, and Plato. Its political importance had waned after being conquered by Alexander the Great in 338 BC and then by the Romans in 146 BC. But, but even in Paul's day, and here around, around AD 50, Athens, Athens remained culturally and intellectually influential. It, it would have been ha- like having Yale and Harvard and Princeton based in New York City. That was the influence of Athens in Paul's day. If you were to, to travel to, to Athens, as even in this day, the, the Parthenon, which was built for the Greek goddess Athena, dominated the city skyline. Again, it still does. The ruins of it still dominate the city skyline of Athens. It was built on the, the highest point because they, they felt that, that the, on the highest points were the places where you could get closest to the gods. And so they, they put the, the, the temple for Athena there on, um, on the Temple Mount. But in Athens, there were, there were many other temples on the Acropolis. There are also many temples in the, the, in the public square, in the, in the community, in the commercial areas down below. And there are statues of, of Greek gods and, and goddesses everywhere. Someone said that it is easier to find, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a human being. And Luke tells us that Paul's spirit was provoked when he saw it. The, the word that's it's translated provoked here is the word from which we get the word paroxysm, which is a, a sudden, uncontrollable outburst. Remember, this is the same, use, same word that Luke used to describe the conflict that, that Paul had with, with Barnabas over John Mark and John Mark's desertion. Needless to say, the Apostle Paul was extremely disturbed by what he saw. Now, I experienced a little bit of this many years ago when I was in Bali. It was a, a Hindu enclave in the predominantly Muslim Indonesia. The, the city was, was full of, of idols and, 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 and of various Hindu pagan deities. And all along the street, there, there were offerings of, of food and, and incense left in the, the doorways of homes. 
And it made me literally feel sick to my stomach to, to be there and to see all of this idolatry. But in our culture, we, we see the rejection of God all around us. And it upsets us. At least it should. But what should we do about it? What did Paul do? Did, did, he, did he pick up a sledgehammer and become an iconic, iconoclast, smashing idols? No, Paul smashed idols, but he did so not with a sledgehammer. He smashed idols with the gospel. He smashed idols with the gospel. Verses 16b and 17. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul shared the gospel. That's how he destroyed idols. And really, Paul is an example to us in this. Again, we, we, we get upset when, when we see rebellion against God in our culture, but we don't set fire to the local mosque. We don't attack abortionists. We don't throw stones at the pride parade. We don't knock over the carts of those handing out needles in the park. We do not achieve spiritual ends through fleshly means. We, we aren't trying to turn Canada into a Christian country. Canada never was a Christian country. In fact, there's really no such thing as a Christian country. There never has been. There will not be until Christ's return. As Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Nor are we trying to moralize the country. The, the morality of, of Islam and, and Hinduism and Buddhism is actually quite similar to that of Christianity because the people in those religions have the moral law of God written on their hearts. There, there's really nothing unique about the morality of Christianity. What's unique in Christianity is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We aren't trying to simply clean up the culture. We're not trying to get people to clean up their lives. We want to see God get the glory that he deserves, especially through seeing men and women repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And that was Paul's goal here in Athens. Paul was greatly distressed by the idolatry that he saw, and so he reasoned in the synagogue, presumably on the Sabbath. And we're told he reasoned in the marketplace every day. He spoke to the people who happened to be there in the marketplace, the people who, again, happened to be there. They were there by God's providence. These were the people that God had decreed would be there. Just like as you go to share the gospel, the people who you speak with are those who God has decreed would be there at that particular moment to hear what you would have to say to them. Luke tells us that Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with Paul. So here we're getting a hint of what's coming. Paul is, is seen to be holding his ground and, and holding his own in discussion with some of the foremost intellectuals of his day. Briefly, the, the Epicureans followed the teachings of Epicurus, the philosopher. They, they believed that the gods were, were subject to natural laws and were therefore inconsequential. And in this, they were like modern agnostic secularists. And they were also hedonists. They, they believed that pleasure, especially mental pleasure, was the utmost good. 
Diogenes, an Epicurean, wrote in about A.D. 200, he really summed up the belief system. He said, there's nothing to fear in God, nothing to fear in death, good can be attained, and evil can be endured. That's the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, follow the teaching of Zeno of Cyprus. They, they were essentially pantheists. They believed that, that humanity and deity are one. They believed that, that, that God really is the universe. They, they also were fatalists, believing that everything happens according to a fixed chain of causes, so that everything that happens is determined by what came before. They believe that virtue is the only good because it is the only thing that, that guarantees happiness and that we must control our emotions and not be bothered by what takes place around us. So you can see that there's actually, in both these philosophies, there's actually an element of truth here. But, but the foundations are, are, are really irreconcilable with the truths of God's word. Some of them disdained Paul by saying, what does this babbler wish to say? The, the word that's translated babbler here referred to a, a small bird that flitted about picking up seeds. The word has, has been used to describe someone who, who picks up bits of information and then tells them to others as if he was an authority on the subject. And so you can see how they're, they're criticizing Paul here. The second criticism was that he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Now this charge might on the surface seem innocuous, but it's actually more ominous in that cultural context. To our ears, it appears harmless, but, but what it really was was very likely a veiled threat. You see, it was common knowledge that the philosopher Socrates had been forced to kill himself by drinking poison hemlock for failing to acknowledge the gods that the city acknowledges and, hear this, and for introducing new deities. I believe this is very intentional, what they're saying here about Paul. So in a sense, I, I think that, that Luke is, is saying here that, that Paul was like a, a new Socrates in one sense. However, he preached Christ crucified and, cruc and Christ resurrected. And it was the resurrection that was ultimately the sticking point. Both Epicureans and Stoics denied the after afterlife. And Greeks in general believed that, that after death the soul would, would travel to, to the underworld called Hades and that there was no coming back from Hades. And so they balked at the resurrection. So they took Paul to the Areopagus, which translated means literally Ares Hill after the, the Greek god. The Romans called this god Mars, so this is also referred to as Mars Hill. So the Areopagus then means Mars Hill. However, it might not have actually been the, the location of Mars Hill, though that's possible. It could also refer to the Areopagus Council, who met at this, initially met at this location. And they it seems that they very likely moved locations after that. As Ben Witherington explains, this Areopagus Council was responsible for maintaining religious customs and order in the city to act as a court dispensing verdicts and justice when necessary. And I believe that, that what's happening here in Acts 16, or 17 rather, is, is really speaking to the Areopagus Council, to the who rather than to the where. Because he says in verse 22 that Paul, when he, he stands, he's, sta he's said to be standing in the midst of the Areopagus in the midst, I believe, of the Areopagus 
counsel. And some commentators suggest that, that here that Paul was being put on trial, again, like Socrates. But, but given the way that the discussion carries out, especially how it ends, I don't think Paul was actually arrested here and brought to trial, but I do think that they were antagonistic towards him and, towards his, and clearly towards his beliefs. They were curious, but they were not looking for friendly discussion. They said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now Luke here inserts an editorial comment saying, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there were spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They were distracted by, by hearing and telling others about theological fads. Does this sound familiar? Daryl Bach points out that Luke portrays the intellectual Athenians as the seed pickers, as they accuse Paul of being. They are the ones who are looking for, for snippets of information and telling others about it. They are the babblers. So now Paul addresses the Areopagus. Again, this is probably not a, a formal trial, but it's at least a former hearing where he's required to present his teaching before the council. And so standing in their midst, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Notice here Paul's starting point. He points out their religiosity. Now, in our culture, most of the times you hear the word religion, it's used in a negative context. Even, even in, 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 in church circles, you'll often hear the, the word religion used in a negative context. But religion is not bad in and of itself. Religion is, is simply defined as man seeking to approach God. But there's only one true religion. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. There's only one true religion. Every other religion is a lie. One must seek God on God's terms. And Jesus Christ is the terms. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every other attempt to seek God is idolatrous, and blasphemous. It's the breaking of the first three commandments. The Athenians' religion was really the worst of their sins. In reality, they were as far from God as was humanly possible. But before we press in on the, on the Athenians, I need to ask you, are you very religious? Again, that's good or bad, depending on which religion you follow. Are you seeking God? Well, that's a good thing, but only if you're seeking God on his terms, only if you're seeking God through Jesus Christ. If you are seeking God through anything but Jesus Christ, you are just like the Athenians. If you're trying to seek God by depending on your intellect or your wisdom or your good works or your doctrine or anything in you, you are far away from God. God can only be approached through faith alone, faith in the substitutionary life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the only way of salvation 
that God has decreed. So Paul has made that, that initial connection point in speaking of them and their religion, but now he makes it even more explicit point of connection. He points out that he has observed their object of worship, but he zero their objects of worship, but he zeroes in on one in particular. He says that he found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. The Athenians were so religious that they did not want to accidentally miss out on one of the gods, so they included an extra as an insurance policy, just in case. Now, Paul is not compromising here. He's not saying, well, it's okay if you have this idol, this this altar to the unknown God. Remember that that he is doing this. This is all because... He, because, because of his, his zeal for the glory of God, he shows great disdain for the Athenians' altars and their idols. He is using this altar simply as a point of contact, using something, something that is familiar to them as a bridge to point them to the one true God. He's saying something in a, in a sense that it is, he's saying that in a sense that they, they worship this God, but in reality, they don't know him at all. Now, Paul could have simply just opened up the scriptures like he did in the synagogues. But again, these people were completely biblically illiterate. They have no knowledge of the scriptures whatsoever. So you'd have to go to great lengths to lay a foundation on the nature of scripture. Instead, what Paul is doing is, is again, this is apologetics. It's it's pre-evangelism. He's using biblical concepts without quoting chapter and verse mindful of his hearers and of their their philosophical and their intellectual disposition, he shows them the reasonable nature of the Christian faith. Again, he's, he's he's not trying here to reason them into the kingdom of God, but he's showing them that the Christianity makes sense. It makes sense logically, and, and it even makes sense from what they already know. And so he's, he's revealing to them what they know in order to show them the God who they do not yet know. He's saying, he says explicitly, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So now he uses yet another clear point of contact, creation. Again, he's pointing to something that they already know in order to reveal to them what they do not yet know. So he begins by proclaiming God the God who made the world and everything in it. Again, he begins with with God's self-revelation in nature. All people at all times know intrinsically that God made everything. People look at the creation and know that there is a creator. So Paul's starting place here, again, is not the scriptures. It's not special revelation, but general revelation. He's not using biblical theology here, but natural theology. Again, Paul's starting place is not special revelation, but natural revelation. Special revelation refers to God's word. And so we would not know the content of what is in special revelation without the scriptures. We wouldn't know the content of of truths like, like the triune nature of God or the humanity and the deity of Christ or the substitutionary death of Christ unless God reveals them to us in his word. But natural revelation, also called general revelation, speaks of God's testimony of himself in nature. 
And it's called general revelation because it's, it's revealed to all people. So then Luke is recounting the fact that, that, that Paul's starting place with these Athenian philosophers, those who have no knowledge of God, is not the scriptures, but creation. Now, of course, he, he grounds, grounds everything in, in biblical principles. As we just saw in Thessalonica, Thessalonica and sorry, Thess, yeah, Thessalonica and Berea, Paul was there speaking to Jews and God-fearers. Those who are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures use the scriptures as a starting point. But here he's using creation, natural theology. And, now, now, and that's not the only way to do it. Right? There, there, are, there are many. There's only one way to God through Christ, but there's many ways to Christ. You can also appeal to God's moral law, much like Ray Comfort does, asking people, are you a good person? And most people then say yes, and then he begins to, to ask them questions uh, from the moral law of God. But again, the, the moral law of God, is, it's, really, it's, it's actually part of, of general revelation because all people have God's moral law written on their hearts. So that's also another useful tool when, when you are seeking to evangelize others. But here, again, he's appealing to creation. So again, this is general revelation or natural theology. And so Paul uses natural theology here as a preparation for the school of grace, preparation for the light of the gospel. And the scriptures speak repeatedly of, of how God has revealed himself in creation. We heard it this morning in Psalm 8 in our call to worship. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. But, but nowhere is natural theology so well developed as in Romans 1. Now we'll be studying Romans, beginning a study of Romans, Lord willing, after we finish Acts. But, but as, a, as a teaser trailer, let's just go there for a moment to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 32. I'm not, not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to summarize it. Notice that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that, that unrighteous men are suppressing the truth. It's not that they don't, they don't know the truth, but they're suppressing it. They're, they're pushing it down in their unrighteousness. God has shown them, in verses 19 and 20, God has shown them his eternal power and divine nature in creation. And so they are without excuse there at the end of verse 20. Because although they knew God, they didn't honor him or give thanks to them, but they became, but their foolish hearts were darkened, claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they traded the glory of the immortal God for man-made images. And so what what Paul is saying here is that, that all people know that, that God exists and that God made everything. This is the Athenians. And it's our culture too. Now, you know, we are not surrounded by statues that says this is this God and this is that God. We, we might not bow before statues, but we, we bow before worldly success. We bow before wealth. We bow before toys. We bow before pleasure. Our pantheon is 
populated by athletes and movie stars. We make gods who look like what we want to be. That typifies our culture. But does it typify you? Do you live a life that is consumed and controlled by idols? John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols, that, that we, we have to, and since we have to be iconoclasts ourselves, we have to smash the idols in our hearts. We do this again through the gospel. So we consciously bow the knee before the one true God. And so realize this, when you are going out into the culture, when you are sharing the gospel at work or with your neighbors or friends or family members, remember that what they breathe. Remember that they are just as idolatrous as the Athenians. And in many cases, because of their lack of biblical literacy, that the Bible is not really necessarily the starting place, that what you have to do before evangelism is pre-evangelism, is making that connection point, starting with what they already know. And the reality is that they know that God exists. That there really is no such thing as an atheist. If you're talking to, to a self-professed atheist, they're going to get ticked at you when you say this, but say, you're not an atheist. You're an anti-theist. You know there's a God. You know there's a God. But you consciously reject him. Now, our goal is not to make them angry, but our, our goal is to, to disarm them, to, to show them that What's reality, the reality of their hearts? And as you talk with them about these things, if the, if the door of conversation is still open, you can then begin to, to consciously make those connection points and, and seek to, to bring them to the light of the gospel in, in hope and, and prayer that the Holy Spirit will, will, will cause those seeds that you're planting to germinate and bear fruit for his glory. Now Paul continues here in verse 24, now showing them the futility of their religion. It says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of, of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The, the idea that the omnipresent God could live in a temple or be represented by a statue is insanity. It's not just idolatry, it's, it's, it's insanity. How could a God who made everything possibly live in a man-made temple or be represented by a man-made statue? And really, this echoes Stephen's sermon before he was stoned in, in Acts chapter 7, 48 to 50. He said, Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands, the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, Stephen there is, is referencing the Old Testament in Psalm 11 and Isaiah 66. But, but the concept is not foreign to pagan sources either. Euripides wrote in the 5th century BC, what house built by craftsmen could enclose the form divine with enfolding walls? And so what Euripides there was saying is really what is, is true according to, to natural revelation, to, to general revelation or natural theology, that all people already know that. But they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Similarly, in verse 25, it, it follows from verse 24. Paul continues, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. 
So if the omnipresent God could not live in a temple or be represented by a statue, how could the, omni, the omnipotent God need any service from men? How could God be served by sacrifices? Now we see the sacrifices in the Old Testament, but, but they, were, they were never actually to be, a, to be a form of service to God. They were to be a picture to the, the people who engaged in the, in the sacrificial system to point them to the gospel, to point them to the coming of Christ. God did not need those sacrifices for himself. It was for his people. Again, the Athenians implicitly know this already. They they knew this from the providence of God. They saw the order in creation and knew that there was a creator. However, they rejected him in their willful unbelief. Again, the scriptures testify of these things. Genesis 2.7 the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Isaiah 42, 5, thus says, God, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people who on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So, so he's, Paul here is presenting biblical principles without, without quoting chapter and verse. He's showing them the the intersection with with what they already know about God that reveals to them that there is is so much about God that they do not know or are willfully rejecting. The chief god in the the pagan Greek pantheon was, was Zeus, which is associated with zoe, which is the Greek word for life. It's very possible the apostle Paul here is saying that, that Yahweh is the source of life, not Zeus. Now in verse 25, Paul again speaks of God's providence. Again, something that the Athenians already know in order to show them what they don't know. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the reference here is is to the creation of the whole of the human race from Adam. Again, this is clearly in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, not just in Genesis, but Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. From creation, God had created people to be in fellowship with him. But that fellowship was broken because of sin. And so God's plan in redemption was to make from one man the nations that would populate the earth, and that he would unite people from all nations in Jesus Christ. And yet again, this is also reflected in pagan thought. That the Stoics believed in the unity of the human race. However, they believed that there was a repeating cycle of destruction and renewal. But Paul believed in the coming judgment through Jesus Christ, and it is to this point that he is consciously moving. Verse 27 Paul says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And so so Paul here is he's turning the screws a little bit. That the idea is is of a blind person groping in the dark. And again, this this idea is presented in the scriptures, but also in Greek thought. That, That God is there, 
But from, from the, the Bible, we see that God's redeeming grace cannot be found, so that God cannot be seen without his redeeming grace, without the, the work of, of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the believer, and without special revelation from God's word. That we will never see him through natural theology. We see shadows. We see elements of, of who God is. But in their spiritual blindness, the Athenians can't see him. They prided themselves in their intellect and in their wisdom. But Paul is saying here that they are blind and foolish. He, he's charging the Athenians with ignorance. This is a bold move in that context. Again, natural theology or general revelation can only get you part of the way. Natural revelation is only enough for condemnation. It says that it tells us that no one can say that there is no God, that there is no God. No one can deny the existence of God because creation testifies to the fact that there is a God. But the blindness and corruption of the human heart prevents anyone from actually finding God. Again, what is necessary is divine revelation. What's necessary is the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10, 14, and 15. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We see that Paul continuing this, this pattern here. Again, as he's, as he's turning up the, the heat and, and reminding them of what they know in order to show them what they don't know in verses 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Believing then God, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The, the first reference here is from Job. And the second... When, when Paul quote, quotes their own poets, he's likely speaking to the Greek poet Epimenides. He's also quoted in Titus 1.12. Again, Paul is coming back to something they would have been familiar with, but now he turns it on its head. He's saying that the underlying problem with idols is the belief that God is like a thing that is made by man. We didn't create God God created us. It's not that God lives and moves and has our being in us, but we, as the pagans believe, but we live and move and have our being in him. God is the source of everything. Everything we do, our very lives are dependent upon him and his providential care. But for many... In our culture, we're just like the Athenians, like in Michael Card sings, we've made God in our image, so our faith is idolatry. In my early days as, as a Christian, I was, was, was quite involved in Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous. And in, in the 12 Steps, it speaks of, of the God of my understanding. But if, if your God is the God of your understanding, then your understanding is God. Your understanding is your God, not the true God. And most people are content to have any God except the God of the Bible. But now in verses 30 and 31, Paul brings the message home. This is the point that he's been driving at. Now Paul moves from general revelation, very clearly to special revelation. He proclaims the gospel. 
Okay, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Clearly, he's presenting the gospel. This is where he's been leading. This has been, been his purpose and the point ever since he began to, to address them on the Areopagus. Ben Witherington, he points out the deliberate irony. He says, for while this council is brought to decision by the issue of the resurrection, Paul says it is the resurrection that proves that his audience himself will one day face judgment. So they are here judging Paul over the issue of resurrection. And Paul is saying it is the resurrection by the man who is resurrected that you will be judged. Paul is seeking to, to, to show his audience that they're at the point of decision and judgment. And it's the mention of the resurrection that is the tipping point. The Son of Man receives judgment and dominion authority. So the resurrection is God's witness about Jesus Christ. And really this, this conclusion logically follows, follows from all that Paul has been reasoning. In, in the past, God has, has overlooked people's ignorance as pagans were blindly groping for God. And again, this was willful ignorance. But now that Christ has come, there is no excuse for ignorance. All ignorance will be judged through the crucified and resurrected Christ. God commands all people, Jew and Gentile, to repent. This is the major emphasis of, of the book of Romans that we're going to be studying, we're willing, in a few months. Jew and Gentile were in the same boat apart from Christ. Both groups must repent and come to Christ. He is the only way of salvation for Jew and for Gentile. So now when they heard of the resurrection, Luke says that some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. There, and then he says that some men joined him and believed. So, so there's three responses to what Paul preaches. There's ultimately two, but initially there's three. There's first of all, those who mocked, they, they out and out rejected what Paul said. They rejected any teaching of the resurrection. But then there were those who, who said, we'll hear you again about this. They, they wanted to know more. This, I mean, this could be just procrastination. But I think we want to know more about what you're saying. I think in some sense, they're like, they're like the, the noble Bereans. We want, to, we want to know more about this. We don't want to be closed-minded. We want to be open, open-minded about this. Then Paul went out from the midst, but some followed him. And Luke here names two. Dionysius, the Areopagite. So a man from the council and a woman named Damaris and, again, others with them. There's no mention here of, of the start of a church. It, it doesn't seem like there was a, a big movement of the gospel here in Athens. But these men and women came to faith in Jesus Christ at the proclamation of the gospel. So we see in this passage here at the end of, of Acts 17 how the apostle Paul was was conscious of, of those to whom he was speaking. And he did not, he did not treat the, the, the proclamation of the gospel as though 
you know, one has a, the only tool that he has is a hammer, and so he thinks everything's a nail. He's willing to, to adopt a different approach when the situation calls for it. He, he's conscious of, of who he's speaking to and is, is seeking to, to present the gospel. Yes, ultimately that's where he's going, but first he wants to make sure that they understand that they're speaking a language, that he's speaking a language they understand. He seeks to know them so that he can lead them to the knowledge of God. Again, I think, I think this is very important for us in our evangelism. Yet let me know what we do in this, in this post-Christian culture. You, you can't just, just necessarily go and, and, and say, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that believes, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's a glorious truth. But for most people, they hear that. They have no concept of, of any of those things in our culture. Now, it's not wrong to say that, but you need to be conscious of the fact that, that this person is, it needs to understand the, the full context of, of, of that statement in John 3.16. It reminds me of, of, of the first step in my own conversion when someone, I've shared this before, but when someone held up a sign at a wrestling mat saying John 3.3. That was the first step, but I did go home and read the Bible. I had a Bible that looked at that verse and said, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again, but I didn't, I didn't understand what it meant. I didn't know what, what being born again was, but I knew that I wasn't. And so it was, it was the first step towards my coming to faith. So be conscious of, of who it is you're speaking to. Take time to listen carefully to them. And look for the point of contact. And, and always remember where you're seeking to take the conversation. Right? Be, be intentional. Be be clear in your, in your heart and mind and, and in prayer and the direction that, that you want to go. You want to point these people to, to Christ. You want to, to point the one to whom you're speaking to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his, uh, that he, God the Son, became incarnate. And he walked through this life fully obeying God, loving his His God, his father, with all his heart and soul and mind and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. But knowing all the while that, that his ministry on earth was going to lead to the cross. Where on the cross he would become the sin bearer. Receiving in himself God's wrath for, for our sins. He gave up his life on that cross, but he rose again on the third day for not for his justification, but for our justification. But it did, it did prove that he is truly the righteous one. That he ascended to the Father's right hand, that where he's now ruling and reigning, and that one day he will return to judge the world. And that our only hope is to turn away from our sin, to put our faith in him. This is this what we want people to, to know. But again, if you just drop that on someone out of thin air, they're not going to have any idea what you're talking about. So seek to know the person you're talking to. Seek to, to, to care for them and to listen to them and seek that point of connection because you want to introduce them to Jesus Christ. There's a friend that I've been trying to witness to for for 30 years, 
since I was first saved. And he's still willing to talk to me, still willing to listen to me talk about God and his word. But something he says, he says repeatedly, he says that if God, if God showed himself to me, I'd believe in God. But the reality is, God has shown himself to him. He's shown himself to my friend in creation. He's shown himself to my friend in providence. He's shown himself to my friend in writing the law on his heart. And he's shown himself to my friend through the word of God that I have shared with him again and again and again. He's shown himself to my friend through the change that God has made and is making in my life. But he's shown himself ultimately to my friend in the scriptures. Because in Christ, we see the face of God. If somebody says to you, I'll believe God if he shows himself to me, don't take that for an answer. See, he has shown himself to you, but you're rejecting him. And explain to them lovingly, explain to him or her who Christ really is. That they may repent through the power of the Spirit and come to saving faith in him for the glory of God's name. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for Christ. We praise you that you have opened our eyes through creation, through your scriptures, most powerfully in the person of Christ. We thank you that you have granted us faith in Christ. Help us, Lord, as those who trust in Christ to remember that we are ambassadors for Christ. Give us wisdom. Give us love for you and give us love for those around us that we would faithfully proclaim Christ to these people who are dead in their sins. Trusting that, Lord, you will work through our weak and our pitiful efforts and save some for the glory of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.